My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Bianca Mugeni and Eve Engler. The myth of Canadian benevolence is one of the most fundamental features of this country's political culture. We could talk about a lot of different ways that it shows up, about how it manages to persist, and about its utility for a nation-building project that advances a certain narrow set of interests and pretends they're universal. But the focus of today's episode is on Canada's role in international affairs. In that realm, the myth manifests as a deep commitment to seeing Canada as a force for good on the global stage. In part, this reflects a genuine and admirable desire on the part of many Canadians for this to be true, but it is testament to the power of this myth that it retains its grip in the face of so much evidence that it just isn't. There is, of course, a long history of grassroots projects, critical writing, and social movements pointing out the many harmful roles that Canada plays internationally. Mostly, these focus on specific issues. Things like the predatory role of Canadian mining companies in the Global South, the Canadian state's complicity in oppressing particular peoples as in Haiti or Palestine, Canada's support of coups as in Haiti, Bolivia, and many other countries, Canada's role in the arms trade, Canadian militarism in general or participation in particular wars or occupations targeting non-Western countries, our consistent failure to meet international climate targets despite flowery pro-climate rhetoric, our refusal to support measures to ban nuclear weapons, and our support for trade agreements that institutionalize various forms of global injustice. Bianca Mugeni is a longtime activist in multiple movements and was previously co-executive director of The Leap, the organization that emerged from the Leap Manifesto. Eve Engler is a longtime activist and writer, and much of his work has involved challenging Canadian foreign policy on the streets and in print. They'd been talking for a while about the fact that there was really no organization taking a critical approach to the whole spectrum of foreign policy issues in the Canadian context, and earlier this year they found the perfect opportunity to found one. The context was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's high-profile, high-stakes bid to win a seat for Canada on the 15-member United Nations Security Council. Mugeni, Engler, and some allies wrote an open letter that challenged the myth of Canadian benevolence and briefly made the case for why Canada did not deserve a seat on the Security Council, citing some of the issues just mentioned and others. They got some high-profile signatories and organizational endorsements and published it in the Toronto Star. And then they waged a very visible and noisy month-long campaign in opposition to Canada's bid. Which Canada ultimately lost. In the wake of the visibility and momentum that provided, they simultaneously launched a new organization and a new campaign. The organization is called the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Mugeni is its director, and Engler is an institute fellow. They currently have a small core group of fellows and an advisory board. The Institute's inaugural campaign is a call for a fundamental reassessment of Canada's foreign policy. 
endorsed by former UN Ambassador Stephen Lewis, a number of sitting and former federal, provincial, and municipal politicians, and a whole host of prominent activists, the campaign suggests ten fundamental questions that must be part of any foreign policy reset. As well, they've been engaged in organizing and participating in a flurry of events on a broad range of issues. This whirlwind of outwardly focused activity means that they've not had as much opportunity as they'd hoped to focus on organizational development. Along with that side of things, in the future they hope to continue amplifying the important work being done by other groups on specific issues, and building relationships and solidarity across different struggles related to Canadian foreign policy, they hope to recruit more fellows for the Institute, and ultimately they want the Institute's website to be a one-stop repository for critical information and analysis related to every aspect of Canada's foreign policy. I speak with Majeni and Engler about the myth of Canadian benevolence, about Canada's foreign policy, and about the work of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. My name is Bianca Majeni. I'm the director of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. I'm an activist. I'm an author. Before working at the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, I was the co-executive director of the LEAP, which is the same group that launched the LEAP Manifesto in 2015. I'm a refugee to Canada. My family fled Uganda, where I was born, when soldiers came to the university where my dad was lecturing. They came to kill him. He was targeted for being politically active. I was about six months old when I fled the country under those circumstances. And I think that really marked me in terms of my experience. As I grew up, I wasn't particularly politicized. But then, you know, I had quite a few incidences of racism as I was growing up in the school system and in other places. And part of my politicization was just trying to make sense of the racism that I experienced also following my dad's passing. When I was in my first year of university, I decided to just sort of jump in to activism. I was mostly focused on activism that had to do with fighting racism. And then I got really interested in what was going on in Haiti as well, and Canada's role in that, the racism of that, and the kind of imperialism and my eyes opening up to that. The more that I kept going with the activism and just sort of making the connections between the different struggles, the more I wanted to just continue on that path as an activist. I was very affected by missing and murdered Indigenous women. I worked at the Concordia Centre for Gender Advocacy as a campaigns and programming coordinator in 2009. That was one of our biggest campaigns. And it was just such a thriving hub of activism, of feminist action. And I just saw very firsthand the power of social movements. And I was very lucky to be in Quebec during the student strikes in 2012. So that's a little bit of my path and just sort of continued, you know, worked at the African Union actually for a bit. And then, like I said, helped to launch the Leap Manifesto and now doing this work around critical Canadian foreign policy. And to me, they're all very, very connected. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute launched in the spring of this year with the No to Canada on the United Nations Security Council campaign. And our organization essentially challenges unjust foreign policy measures. So we inform people about the country's diplomatic, military aid policies abroad. And we're nonpartisan. We also monitor corporate Canada's international activities. And the reason why we started out was Canadians generally understand this country to be quite a benevolent force internationally, but the facts often suggest otherwise. And so our role in large part is to bridge gaps between government policy and public perception by both highlighting the existing policy and the gaps in understanding, and also by pushing for better policies. 
My name is Eve Engler, and I'm an activist, author, uh, a number of books about Canadian foreign policy, and I'm a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. I come from a left-wing family. I got heavily criticized when I moved from Vancouver to Montreal to go to Concordia University in the early 2000s. It was a very left-wing student union. It was built up to the mobilization against the free trade area of Americas in Quebec City. The year that I started at Concordia, so I participated in that mobilization and got into student union politics, where I really got criticized on Canadian foreign policy and was heavily active in challenging Canadian foreign policy was when Canada helped overthrow Haiti's elected government in 2004. And that involved helping set up the at Haiti Action Network and Haiti Action Montreal and basically was fully engaged for a few years in Haiti solidarity activism. And that really kind of opened my eyes to Canada's whole world and taught me a fair bit about trying to take on an issue that was very much marginalized in the mainstream and even marginalized within the left and confronting mythology of Canada's role in the world. And that introduced me to the really rotten side of Canada's role in the world. What are the origins of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute? The organization was something that we had been thinking about. Even I had had conversations about the timing of the launching of an institute. And the United Nations Security Council vote was coming up. This seemed like a really great opportunity to discuss Canadian foreign policy. You know, it's a horse race, there's media openings. There's space for more critical discussion of Canada's foreign policy. And so we drafted an open letter that outlined why Canada didn't deserve this seat. We asked prominent individuals to sign on. We launched it as a public petition and a campaign and then sought a way to make this as public as possible. So we reached out to the Toronto Star, who agreed to publish our letter. That was published about a month before the actual United Nations Security Council vote. And when that was published in the Toronto Star, we then opened that up to the public. About 4,000 people between May 19th and the launch sign from the public. You know, it was a month-long, very serious campaign where we partnered with groups like Just Peace Advocates. The campaign included thousands of letters from the public to UN ambassadors. And our general messaging was just, here's what our foreign policy looks like. It's not great. And what we're calling for is foreign policy that's focused on peace and human rights. And until such a time, we don't deserve that seat. And we got a pretty big response, including a pretty direct response from the Canadian government. At the broader level, the public discussion around Canadian foreign policy is incredibly narrow in terms of what makes it into the mainstream discussion. There's a number of pro-corporate, pro-military think tanks and similar type institutes that exist. And there is no multi-issue at foreign policy institute. So, you know, there's like the Rito Institute that deals with some elements of militarism and some elements of diplomacy, but they don't really take on the whole spectrum of Canadian foreign policy issues. And there's groups like Mining Watch that deals with the mining sector. And so the Canadian foreign policy institute, I think, adds a broader perspective of Canadian foreign policy. And part of what it's designed to do is, of course, amplify the work of so many activist groups that are campaigning on single issues from, you know, Palestine or Haiti, mining or nuclear weapons, and try to bring a sort of broader understanding to how these different issues are linked. 
also strengthen all of those specific campaigns by bringing those who are more focused on abolishing nuclear weapons together with those who are challenging Canada's refusal to go along with abolishing nuclear weapons and those who are campaigning on Canada's anti-Palestinian policies and that, you know, collectively we're stronger. We're also trying to serve as a repository of information around Canadian foreign policy. We're dealing with very, very strong mythology. And so that's really one of the main ways that we think we can push a critical lens on Canadian foreign policy and Canada's role in the world. And we really want to be able to do this in the mainstream, right? To deconstruct this harmful mythology. In terms of our motivation, we truly believe that people living in Canada actually want this country to be a force for peace and human rights in the world. And that there is this real need, you know, it just seems like a really big gap in terms of the need to build a movement for a just foreign policy, just feels like there aren't enough people working on this, documenting Canada's role in the world. But of course, critically, we need a more powerful voice for a just foreign policy. And also, I really need to participate in the revitalization of the Canadian peace movement. Also, this is a particularly interesting time in history where a spirit of internationalism is required more than ever. And hopefully people are seeing that more and more because we need this spirit to overcome a lot of these massive threats that we have right now that are global from the COVID pandemic to the climate catastrophe. You've mentioned the powerful mythology that exists around Canada's foreign policy and its supposed benevolence. In the context of your campaigning, how have you gone about trying to convince Canadians, particularly Canadians who maybe haven't thought about it before, that this is not at all an accurate portrayal of the country's role in the world? One thing we tried to do was not to contribute to the mythology while we were challenging immoral current policies. Too often, the standard procedure from most official politics in Canada, challenging Canada's role in a war or voting against Palestinian rights at the UN, is to say we used to be this benevolent force and to say this is our natural state is peace-loving nation, but in this case, we've gone astray. So we were very careful not to contribute to that mythology and instead just laying out a whole spectrum of policy measures of the current government that were unjust and immoral. And also by not fitting just one issue, I think also implicitly we're undercutting the mythology, right? So the open letter dealt with Canadian militarism, it dealt with Canadian arms sales, it dealt with anti-Palestinian positions. It dealt with Canada's role in supporting coup against Eva Morales in Bolivia. It dealt with Canada refusing to sign a whole series of UN agreements that were signed by most of the world. So it dealt with a whole series of different issues. And I think that the people who read that open letter would have been quite frankly startled by how many different issues were in a 700-word letter. So in that sense, I think that helped to undercut Canadian foreign policy mythology. But I think just more generally, we do need to understand that it has basically no basis to facts. And you can go back 150 years or you know, longer, but Canadian foreign policy has always been about advancing empire, historically British, to the American and Canadian corporate interests abroad. And the ruling elites in this country have been prepared to use military force, use different diplomatic means, use money and other forms of statecraft 
to advance those interests. And consistently, they frame what they're doing internationally as supporting the international rules-based order or supporting the UN, but underlying the driving forces are support for empire and corporate interests. I think the directness of our message and the refusal to hearken back to a pretend era where our foreign policy was better was, I think that was a really important part of this strategy. And we were very direct about the fact that people living in Canada want a better foreign policy. We want a foreign policy that's based on peace and human rights. And we don't want a foreign policy, the current foreign policy that we have, that's based on support for empire, that's not independent from the U.S.'s foreign policy, and that is very much about advancing Canadian corporate interests abroad. I feel as though part of the success is for sure tying a lot of different issues together and making a compelling case. But I think also the fact that we weren't shy to reach out to signatories like David Suzuki, for instance, Roger Waters and Noam Chomsky, Sasuko Thurlow, who was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, to sign on to this. And I think that people sort of paused and said, well, why would all of these people sign on to this letter? What do all of these things have to do with each other? You know, we also reached out to organizations to add their names, to have this collective show of solidarity. And I think a lot of different interest groups could see themselves in it. I think putting a lot of these things together was I think a very important exercise to say this is not a single issue thing. So I think putting all of this together at this particular time, getting signatories of fairly high profile to sign on to this, as well as groups who are working on these issues to sign on and say, yes, Canada is doing these things, combined with the fact that Canada lost its seat, right? And I think that that gave pause, right, and space to actually say, well, why did we lose this seat? And when that happened, we immediately launched a call for a fundamental reassessment of Canadian foreign policy. And we're like, Canada suffered two consecutive defeats. And it's time to fundamentally reassess our Canadian foreign policy. And I think whatever end of the political spectrum one is on, it's clearly a moment to pause and reflect on Canadian foreign policy. And we not only lost, we lost by a significantly larger margin than we did even under the Harper era. So I think there was a lot of space for people to hear the possibility that we lost because of our controversial mining companies, because of our indifference to international treaties, because of our anti-Palestinian positions, because of climate policies, because of militarism. So this definitely took on quite a bit of momentum. In terms of our call for a fundamental reassessment of Canadian foreign policy, basically the way that we pose it is as 10 questions. Among those 10 questions are things like, should Canada have a foreign policy that's driven by Washington or an independent foreign policy? Should we continue to offer financial and diplomatic support to arms exporters or should we refocus on demilitarization? How can we ensure that Canada abides by all international treaties protecting Indigenous rights? Does Canada's sanctions policy respect international law? Should Canada continue to be a part of NATO or pursue non-military paths in the world? Why are we involved in efforts to overthrow Venezuela's recognized government in clear violation of the principle of non-intervention in other countries' internal affairs? This call for a fundamental reassessment was signed by 200 people, including former statesman Stephen Lewis, Naomi Klein, four sitting MPs, Paul Manley, Leah Gazan, Nikki Ashton, Alexandre Boulouris. And that's really the foundations of where we started as an institute. What did the practical side of it look like, of the transition from that initial campaign around the UN Security Council seat to actually founding an organization? 
beginning to be honest, a little bit chaotic. There's still many elements of the organizational setup that are in the works, of course, like getting more fellows. There's a advisory committee that's a fairly informal body. There's ambition going forward in terms of potentially having local chapters or the like. Part of the objective of the foreignpolicy.ca website is to be a repository of all critical stories on Canadian foreign policy out there. But the move from this heavy campaigning to have Canada lose its bid for a seat in the city council to this move into trying to take the moment after the defeat to a certain degree of political opening in the dominant media to try to get in our perspective, which we had a certain amount of success with. But the success of the campaign in the Security Council kind of opened up so many doors that we kind of ended up going from that to event after event any of which have been quite high profile. And so we haven't been able to put the energy into taking care of the institution building to the extent that we would like because we have just sort of been going from event to event, partly because there's groups out there from a newly formed Latin America solidarity group that pretty soon after the Security Council wanted to do a webinar with us to the Venezuela foreign minister, his representative wanting to do something about casual Venezuela to people on the advisory committee wanting to do a debate around the Green Party leadership election and they're doing a very successful debate on foreign policy to a group working on Kashmir wanting to partner on an event on Kashmir to this campaign around fighter jets and having Canada not spend 19 plus billion dollars on fighter jets to working on nuclear weapons and wanting to organize a big webinar on why Canada hasn't signed the UN nuclear ban treaty. So the process of the Security Council campaign has kind of pushed us into more of a campaigning mode and more just action after action, the the institution building mode, which is obviously a good thing and also has its downside. Some of the things that we set out to do that have started our, you know, we have our website and we have educational tools on there. We've got a wiki that's got important themes in Canadian foreign policy. We lay out on the website lots of activist groups that are working on issues around different areas. There's resources there, lots of books and films and things like that that people can check out. We aim to republish and post things like news and opinions on critical foreign policy. A lot of that happens on the website. A lot of it actually happens on our social media, particularly our Twitter, which has sort of ended up becoming the repository in some ways. It's just so much easier to do. On the website, you can also find our media bureau or fellows. We have a number of people who can be contacted for interviews. We've done a lot of media work as well since the Institute launched, mostly in the form of articles and op-eds, but also press events, press releases. And as Eve mentioned, we do try to work with as many groups as possible and on a variety of issues. There's just so much. I feel like we've had so many events and we've still just touched the surface of Canadian foreign policy. A lot of the stuff that we work on is sort of linked to current events. And certainly the most active area for us beyond media work has been around events. And we've sort of used our email, which we're building, which is you know part of our process of building an institute, because of course you can communicate very directly with people who are interested in these issues. So we've really been building our list up and mobilizing our email list to engage in action around Canadian foreign policy, around the events that we're hosting, but also around the work of other organizations and amplifying the work that others are doing. In terms of events, 
Most of our past events can actually be found on our website. I've been sort of astounded at just a level of interest in the events, both from the public, but also just in terms of who we've been able to gather to the table to have these conversations. Given the sheer breadth of issues and struggles encompassed by the Institute's mandate, how are you going to be approaching the question of how to strategically focus your energies in the coming years? That's a good question. My initial reaction would be I, I don't really know. I think that how we're trying to pursue things is that where there's activism and groups organizing, we try to support however possible. And I think that in terms of strategy, it is ever-evolving and ongoing. The formula, what has worked for us thus far, is to follow current events, look for openings, because we are trying to mainstream critical Canadian foreign policy. And so we have to keep our ear to the ground. And in terms of the UNSC campaign, several months in advance of it, it was identified as a critical point. And we're definitely going to have to continue to identify those moments. So in addition to just staying current, you know, going where the heat is, I think that's very important and connecting and building and strengthening. Almost on the opposite end of that, I think one of the things and it it requires a lot of resources and we've been very busy with events and whatnot is I do think that historical perspective is so important, particularly given the mythology that has allowed Canadian foreign policy to be so terrible. And so expanding this historical memory through our website and through other resources, I think, is an important project for the Institute to take on. These historical perspectives on Canadian imperialism are really critical, and we are hoping for the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute to really build that repository. So 100%, we want to help build a movement for a just foreign policy, however and wherever we can, resources allowing, putting issues of peace and international justice in the public sphere. You know, we don't want to just be talking to ourselves, which is part of why we've been doing these very public talks and webinars, and hopefully in the future, we'll be able to integrate more art and, you know, make beautiful posts and continue the work of education and activism. Hopefully we'll be able to better amplify, better convene, and better make connections between the work of anti-war groups, international solidarity groups, mining justice groups. You know, I'd love to support more action, things like rallies, petitions, or legal challenges, just, yeah, supporting the initiatives of others. Specifically in terms of the CFPI and where it could go in the future, part of the vision is to have volunteers, reading groups, chapters, to collaborate on reports, and to continue to do the work in a more effective manner of monitoring diplomatic aid and trade policies, and also making international ties to movements and to governments and individuals that are challenging an unjust Canadian foreign policy. So five years from now, it would be amazing to see the expanded influence of, you know, these critical ideas in foreign policy with the ultimate goal of having a less harmful foreign policy with a focus on peace and human rights. You have been listening to my interview with Bianca Mugeni and Eve Engler of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. To learn more about it, go to foreignpolicy.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.